0: We'll pick it up right there. I'm Melissa Lee, and this is Fast Money. Tonight's Trader Lineup, Karen Bynum Guy Dami, Dan Nathan, and Tim Seymour. Let's get straight to it. We are getting headlines out of the Disney Investor Day. The company's streaming service front and center at this year's meeting. Some staggering numbers unveiled so far. Let's get straight to Julia Borson, who's got all the details. Julia.
1: Melissa, that's right. The streaming service at front and center. And the message from Disney CEO Bob Chapek, as well as uh, from Kareem Daniel, who's in charge of the distribution of all of Disney's content, is that the streaming direct-to-consumer model is working. The company announcing 86.8 million subscribers to Disney+. Now, that is up um, from 73.7 million announced at the end of the last quarter. So meaningful growth as they've rolled out to Latin America. They're also talking about a new distribution deal with Comcast, saying that these distribution deals having easy access through the likes of Apple um, has been really crucial for their growth. And this partnership with Comcast on its X1 platform will also be instrumental. And a lot of talk right now about the amount of exclusive content that's going to be on Disney+. Plus. They say over the next few years, roughly 10 Marvel series, 10 Star Wars series, 15 Disney live-action series, as well as films from Disney Animation and Pixar. And then, Melissa, asked the question of what happens to the movie theaters, they say the key thing about this reorg is they're able to be nimble and decide which films should go where on a case-by-case basis, so not making any big commitments. But they did say there will be some films that go into theaters for a window before they're available on Disney+. Other films, they said, will be available day and date. That means available... For streaming the same time they're in theaters that might be controversial with the theater chains we'll have to see and then they say other films that were intended for theaters they'll send straight to disney plus because that's the best thing for them to do right now in terms of the pandemic so really setting forth a nimble strategy of distribution but disney plus is really at the center of it and in terms of the overall numbers they're showing growth across these different platforms espn plus they say has 11 and subs hulu 38.8 million subs, Melissa.
0: Um, it's a four-hour presentation, as I understand, Julia, so I'm sure there are going to be a lot more headlines you're going to keep us posted on. But in terms of the 86.8 uh, million number, sub uh, sub number, how many of those subs are not paying? In other words, how many are getting it for free?
1: So Disney has always reported paying subscribers. Mm-hmm. Remember, they have a deal with Verizon, but Verizon is paying Disney. So this is not a situation where they have tons of free subscribers who are doing trial periods, they really are able to get people to pay. And I think the key thing here is it's not, Melissa, just about the fact that they have these partnerships, but they also have been putting exclusive content on the platform. Speaking of which, they have an animated movie that's coming out in March. They say they're going to be putting it on Disney Plus the same time it's in theaters. Of course, that could be controversial, um, but it seems like this is the way of the world and those traditional windows between theatrical and at-home distribution have really been shattered.
0: Is this the venue, Julia, where executive departures could be announced? There have been some rumblings that Bob Iger would depart. He has made comments that he would be willing to serve in a Biden administration. So even though Bob Chapek is obviously at the helm, uh, people are wondering about Iger.
1: You know, I've heard a lot of speculation, a lot of rumors that Bob Iger is being considered for various roles in the Biden administration. One senior executive told me they'd love to see him be ambassador to China. As far as I can tell, that's not going to be coming today. I believe that Disney really wants this to be about the content and about the vision for Disney Plus. Of course, this direct to consumer um, focus of the company is something that Iger has really put forth. But we will be hearing from Iger later in the day. He's going to be unveiling the content slate. So right now they're talking about the business. CFO Christine McCarthy is laying out some new financial forecasts for the company. And then later on, um, there's going to be a break. And then Iger is going to be showcasing some of the content um, that will be the centerpiece of Disney+. Plus. So who knows? There could always be a surprise. But from what I'm hearing, uh, he's really going to be focusing on the content today.
0: All right, Julia, thank you. Keep us posted. I could be wrong. I could be wrong. We'll well, we'll stay tuned. (laughs) Julia, thank you, Julia Borson. The stock is up 3% in the after hour session. The stock is up, by the way, about 32% since this investor day was announced in August. Guy Adami, where do you stand on Disney shares right now? And should it now, now that it's putting forth this huge slate of original content, get some of that valuation that a Netflix has?
2: You know, although Tim Seymour is our emerging markets expert, he's become our Disney expert as well. And he was early, and usually early is wrong, but in this case it was right, saying that, you know, Disney is morphing itself into a streaming company. Now, all of a sudden, you have analysts talking about exactly that. I think Wells Fargo raised their price target a couple days ago to 185 citing streaming. You're going to have more analysts probably now, given you probably have, if you include Hulu and ESPN, probably north of 135 million or so subs. It's tremendous numbers and I guess you're getting the rest of the company at somewhat of a discount. That's the play here. You know, valuation, I think, is a concern because at 32 times next year's numbers, it's clearly expensive to what it was uh, in its history. But you know what? It's not Disney of, your, of my father's or your father's Disney. It's morphed into something else. So maybe that 185 price target is right melissa
0: yeah that wells fargo that was actually an upgrade also so not just the price target increase credit Suisse also increased their their price target so did morgan stanley uh just in recent days so tim i hear all this huge slate of content and i think lots of spending do you like that as a shareholder
3: look uh, netflix is is still cash flow negative and so you know it's been great for netflix shareholders and guys talking about this hybrid multiple that i think how can you not take 137 million of DTC customers across their entire spectrum as of December 2, which is what I just read, um, and not say, wow, this is, this is real, this is major critical mass. And, and, and at some point, they're also going to have pricing power with this. And the rumor is they're going to start raising prices next year. But more importantly, back to the multiple, uh, if you put a seven times multiple on this stock, uh, on, on just their DTC business, seven times sales. And remember, if you look at Netflix, it trades at about 11 times trailing 2019 sales. Uh, So, you know, and then you put the legacy business at 15, 16, 17 multiple, um, you've got $180 stock. And that's something that I think the street is getting around to. I think these upgrades are buried in this hybrid multiple, which is going to be a sum of the parts of the DTC business and the legacy business. And why shouldn't Disney continue to re-rate? And and unfortunately for, for, yes, they're not earning money right now, and they're going to spend a lot on on cash, uh, excuse me, of their cash on content. But... Um, that's to be rewarded if you look at the other players in the industry, like Netflix.
0: You agree, Karen? I mean, this is a stock that just hit its all-time high in yesterday's session, with a major part of its business effectively shut down.
4: Right. So they do get a pass on, uh, you know, parks and hotels. And um, so they'll get a pass. It sort of doesn't matter how bad those quarters coming up are. But I guess, you know to me, it's expensive. They've done a tremendous job in the last year. Um, The growth is fantastic. I just, you know, at some point, I always think companies need to make money. Netflix, I guess, teaches us a different lesson. I've also been concerned about the debt they had from the Fox acquisition. But I guess in a zero rate environment, it doesn't matter how much debt you have. Um, So, I understand why it's trading up. I think that I can't, I can't see getting on board here, but I would not be surprised if it goes higher. I'm, I'm interested. I don't know how much they'll focus on some of the, what we call legacy businesses now. Uh, I'm interested if they're going to spend much time on that or if the whole story now is just going to be all streaming and that's the disney story
0: well it seems like that's the multiple or valuation expansion part of the story which is very important to shareholders um dan when i heard 10 new star wars series for disney plus i immediately thought of you and how you'll be glued to dis (laughs) plus
5: so i have two words for you mel boba fett okay the Mandalorian with Jon Favreau brought this thing out last year they launched Disney Plus with this it's absolutely killing it the fact that they have 87 million viewers on a two billion dollar spend in this first year versus Netflix that's gonna do 15 16 17 maybe even higher on their original content you say to yourself okay Netflix has 200 million paid subscribers globally and Disney hasn't even rolled it out you think of the Marvel universe you think of Pixar you think of this new world order that we're in whether these directors and these creators don't like the fact that movies are gonna have these uh, dual releases it's happening and I can't think of a better catalog um, than Disney's to kind of roll this out for this new uh, way that we're gonna be viewing content that was once made for the big screen so when you think about that I buy the argument Tim says seven times sales for this part of Disney's business which is only going to be growing very fast I do have a problem with where it is when you think about these other legacy businesses. You think of the challenges that they have um, in their networks business with ESPN, that sort of thing. I mean, these are all still there. Um, So the way I see it is, you know, the stock's at all time highs here. Could it pull back to that 140 breakout level uh, over the next month or two, and then you start reloading? But this is gonna be a different company going forward. Tim and Karen and Guy have been all over this for months and months and months, and I think you look to buy it on pullbacks.
0: Here's a question for you, Guy, multiple choice. So follow along very carefully because there are three choices. If you want to get a pen and paper, you're welcome to do so right now. It's a good time. <laughs> you're literally doing that. Disney, Comcast, or Netflix right here.
2: Disney, Comcast, sure or Netflix. Down. I don't need my smart board. I don't, no, I don't need my smartboard for that. I, I, just, I just don't need it. Netflix Netflix is still, there was used to be a softball team that played in my area in Westchester called The King and His Court. It was one dude and like two other people, and they would smoke everybody they played. Uh, Netflix is The King and his or her court, and everybody else are the jesters. So in my world, it would be Netflix there, Mel.
0: I would think, Tim, that uh, all the moves that Disney Plus is making, turning up the heat, turning the screws on some of its competitors, like an HBO Max, which is charging a lot more. Than uh, a Disney Plus subscription costs.
3: Yeah, and 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 yet HBO Max has certainly helped that AT and T stock over the last couple of days. But you know they they certainly created major headwinds talking about how movies will be running through HBO Max and and again the attack on the theaters. This is the one of the big questions for Disney too. How are they going to handle the feature films and through this new reorg structure? You know ultimately, I, I think if anyone is in a position to do this and do this and and stay ahead of everyone is the one is is the group with the best studio out there i mean disney studio uh you know we forget that uh, some of the blockbusters that have been turned out in the last 10 years that have been billion dollar franchises and they keep rolling them out so um yeah i i you know i think that disney is certainly got competition and i do think hbo max is an undervalued asset um but i'd rather own disney over at&t all right
0: For more on Disney's Investor Day, let's bring in Fast Money friend and media mogul, Tom Rogers, former NBC cable president and TiVo CEO. He is now the executive chairman of Engine Media and a CNBC contributor. Tom, always a pleasure to speak with you.
6: Thanks for having me, Melissa.
0: Uh, In the notes, I see that you you think the market is underestimating the risks to this story. Why? 86.8 million subs. That's a huge number for a business that had zero a year ago.
6: It does, and they've done a wonderful job with subs. Uh, But uh, the sub number there, it doesn't reveal everything. Uh, I remember once being on the show discussing Netflix and talking about their prospects in Asia. And we said, oh, yeah, but they're going to have a lot of cheap mobile subs. Well, 30% of the subs in that 86.8 number are a dollar or less coming out of India. So you got to put that against what their total revenue is, and it brings it down quite considerably. Um, you got to look what they're doing in the U.S. That's a big global number, but they're doing about 35 million in the U.S. They've been at it a year. Peacock's been at it a few months, and it's at about 26 million. So you got to you, you got to dissect these numbers. Disney does a wonderful job with presentation, and a wonderful job showing how their brand plus distribution, is going to end up with some enormously valued asset. And so far, the market's been buying it. But the issue they got to focus on now, and the reason this event is all about rolling out programming, is their engagement with viewers is actually pretty low. The studies have shown that Netflix, Amazon, even YouTube, have huge viewer engagement compared to Disney, which is only about 5% of streaming time so to really get up their pricing to really have a bright price value proposition that is going to put them in the leagues of a netflix they have to get much more engagement to do that they need much more original programming for much more original programming they're going to have to spend a lot more than they originally sent. and that is going to have to be across hulu across star and of course disney plus so how they how much they are willing to spend is a big issue here, and that they haven't revealed so far in this event as they talk about programming.
4: Tom, it's Karen. Thanks for coming on today. Um, let me ask you: When you talk about this enormous growth and value, what? How do we think about valuing this? How do you value it?
6: Well, you know, when you think you can't value Disney without thinking about all the headwinds involved with Disney. Disney has more opportunity than any legacy media company, but it's got much more headwind than any legacy media company because it's such a big part of the bundle. Basically, when you gotta think that as we go from 100 million a few years ago in satellite cable subs down to something that's in the high mid 70s today, we're you're talking about $17 of value coming out of that bundle which they're trading for subs in somewhere in the sixth, if they're bundled $13 range, that's a big trade-off. And those those streaming subs are lower margin subs. So they're losing much more per subscriber as they uh, dwindle in the cable satellite world relative to the revenue per sub they're picking up in the streaming world. And they have all the marketing costs of direct to consumer in the streaming world which is a wholesale seller to satellite and cable they don't have. So you can't look at Disney as, wow, it's going to make this transition to streaming, and there's no real cost to their doing so. The headwinds are huge, and that I don't think the market is focused on as much because the brunt of those headwinds, although they've been feeling them, haven't hit fully yet.
0: Tom, just quickly, we've got to let you go, but i got to ask you this multiple-choice question, which I posed to Guy as well. You're also free to break out a pen and paper. if I don't think you need to, though. Disney, Comcast, or Netflix?
7: <laughs> which
6: I, do you like I, best? I've got to agree with the great Guy. Guy said Netflix. <laughs> Netflix is in a category by itself in terms of global subs, in terms of price value perception, in terms of the rate that it's able to charge internationally, which okay. runs circles around Disney+ comcast next because it has a broadband pipe coupled with content play disney i'd put last
0: all right tom great to speak with you thank you so much tom rogers Uh, we should note that comcast is a parent company of cnbc dan nathan what do you think how, how do you think about the streaming landscape a year from now a lot has changed in just one year
5: Yeah, I think Tom brought up some good points about the headwinds for Disney. I'll just tell you this, I cut the cord last year and I'm using Hulu and that's how I access my live um, TV right now. And I obviously have a bundle with ESPN Plus, with Disney Plus. I think there's going to be tremendous opportunities as that um, cord cutting continues to increase. But I also think it's worth noting that Guy and the great Tom Rogers pick of Netflix. Netflix hasn't gone anywhere in four months. If anything, it's actually been rejected above 550 each of the last three times it's been there since September. Um, so to me, I think before the pandemic, we were already pricing in what negative growth in North America looked like for Netflix. They might've pulled forward a lot of big demand. So we're gonna see what that looks like in 2021, especially as all this competition ramps up, uh, Peacock and you know Warner, HBO Max, and Disney Plus. So I think there's a lot coming. So I'm not so certain that Netflix is the play right here.
0: All right. Disney shares are up three and a quarter percent right now. The Investor Day presentation continues. We'll bring you any news as it breaks. Coming up, another big story we're following tonight. Airbnb going bonkers in its market debut. Should you book this name in your portfolio? We'll debate that ahead. But first, we've got an earnings alert for you on Lululemon and Oracle. Both shares on the move after reporting results. We'll bring you all the after hours action when Fast Money Returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. We've got an earnings alert on Lululemon and Oracle, both stocks on the move in the after-hour session. Eric Chemi standing by with the latest on Oracle. But we kick things off with Sarah Eisen, who has the latest on Lulu. Sarah. Hi, Melissa. Good to see you.
8: So this was a much better than expected report from Lulu. In fact, earnings beat all of the estimates on Wall Street. Strong sales continues to be the name of the game, up 22% overall. If you break that down further, I'll give you some other numbers, which really speaks to the strength right now that Lulu is seeing. store sales, which includes online and stores open at least a year, up 19%. Women's sales, up 22%. Men's only up 14%. CEO Calvin McDonald just talking about that on the call, saying she was quicker to go out shopping after the lockdowns than he was, but that men's is still a key priority and growth driver for the company. Another... Number that beat expectations, online sales, up 93%. The company also gave an update on Mirror. Remember, that was Lulu's first ever acquisition back in June. The at-home fitness company bought for half a billion dollars. It is selling it in stores, says it launched in 18 different stores and online. Mirror costs $1,500, and Lulu says it's going to add about $100 million in sales this year. McDonald's also saying it's having a strong holiday quarter. They also said that they gained share in North America and just often analyst questions about a question about Tam or total addressable market. Calvin McDonald saying that he believes that they are in the early stages of reaching the total addressable market, pointing to the strength they're seeing in men's and saying women's is far from seeing its potential, citing new guests coming in to the stores and online this quarter, and new innovations like the cloud bra, which are doing well. The stock is down after hours initially popped on the news on the better results. A few potential reasons. Number one, Melissa, they did not give guidance, which may come as a disappointment, just citing the uncertainty around COVID-19. They've been impacted, of course, by capacity restraints in stores and closures around the world. And it's also very high multiple already trading around 60 times earnings so that's always going to be the debate on the stock
0: yep Sarah thank you Sarah Eisen uh, with the lowdown on Lululemon Karen where where do you stand on Lulu I mean those numbers are just staggering DTC business up 94 percent
4: up 90 here's the thing that's so amazing so DTC is now 43 percent of their business and and they were able to increase their gross margin one percent while doing so Everyone else, including Lulu, as they switched to a more online business, actually saw margin compression. So they're seeing margin expansion now. That's amazing. I was a little skeptical of Mirror. If, if it's hundred million of revenue, if it were, you know, freely traded today, it would trade at a lot more than five times revenue. So I think uh, also they're having, they have bigger sizes. So maybe their total addressable market of women that would wear uh, Lulu is increasing. And they increased their buyback to 500 million. My only problem with Lulu, and I don't own it anymore, which makes me sad, but my only problem is, it's so expensive. When it got to about, I don't know, 50 times earnings, I felt like, all right, I had to sell it as great as it is. It doesn't mean you'll pay any price for it. So um, it's not surprising that it was down, just uh, the weight of its own expectations were too high, no matter what they put out. This was a fantastic quarter.
0: The gross margins were impressive. I mean, 56% gross margin for a retailer. Uh, Tim Seymour, where do you stand on this?
3: Well, I I like the story, but I think it's too expensive. But, again, let's highlight 43% DTC of their overall business from 27% a year earlier. And and if you look at those quarterly sequential sales, though, they're extraordinary. I I just have to say, does it get any better for, for Lulu than this? Um, and, and this is I, I think there's a real comeuppance for some of these specialty retailers when we get well through COVID, where these multiples um, don't have the same kind of tailwinds. And again, they're a big winner. And the men's dynamic, Guy can talk about those ABC pants because I know he's a big advocate. Um, but I, I, I think this stock is too expensive. Such, such a great company, though.
0: Uh, it's the underwear, he said yesterday. I'm quoting Guy from yesterday's oh, yeah, show. yeah, um, But I think that's a question for a lot of these work from home pandemic success stocks guy. And that's a degree of pull forward. That's a great degree of, you know, is it going to be this good later on? Are people going to want to buy all those yoga pants if they actually have to go someplace?
2: The short answer, the short answer is I think they can continue on. I mean, maybe the trajectory slows, but 56 times next year's numbers expensive. And, you know, the one thing, so I'll see your gross margins, which were Mm -hmm. outstanding, but operating margins this quarter last year were 19.3 percent. And this year they came in, I think, at 18.3. Better than the street was expecting, by the way, but operating margin is a little lower. Maybe people are disappointed by that. Mm. If you're looking for the level to buy the stock, it comes in the form of the October high, where we traded up to and failed 356. I think it probably gets there. And by the way, kudos to Sarah Eisen, who's doing yeoman's work, I mean, putting in the extra hours to just surround the Lululemon earnings. Well done, Sarah. Yes,
0: we always appreciate it. When Sarah graces us with her presence and gives us her expertise. Um, let's now turn to Oracle. Mm-hmm. The stock is off its after hours lows. The company's call is underway. Let's get to Eric Chamu who's following the call. Eric.
9: Hey, Melissa, that's right. Oracle shares dropping as much as 2% after the bell on the earnings report, but recovering a bit after guidance on the call. That's better than analysts had expected. Turning back to the last quarter, revenue grew just 2% from last year. The company beefed up its cloud services during the quarter as people continued to work remotely. That helped it strengthen its position against Microsoft and Amazon's cloud offerings. The company's largest business segment is cloud services and license support, which was up 4% from last year and slightly beat analyst estimates. But smaller parts of the company declined, like cloud license and on-prem license segment. That dropped 3%. That was short of estimates. Hardware revenue dropping as well. Services revenue also dropping. In the quarter, remember the federal government agreed to a deal moving TikTok's U.S. user data onto Oracle's cloud infrastructure. But that deal, not final yet, The company also announced the availability of a cloud service that companies can use to monitor the health of different parts of applications running in clouds and on-prem centers. Melissa, back to you. All
0: right, Eric, thanks. Eric Chemi. Dan Nathan, your take on Oracle.
5: Yeah, it's just not particularly exciting when you see that revenue or licensed revenue disappointing and you see, you know, low single digits revenue growth, high single digits earnings growth. You see a stock that's up, you know, less than the S&P 500 on the year, much less than the NASDAQ. You start saying to yourself, why were they thinking about spending $10 billion? They have a mountain of cash, over $40 billion on their balance sheet to get involved in that Tic-Tac deal. You know, I I look around and I say, you know, they should be looking at in the private markets. There's a lot of exciting stuff. You think of that um, Um, that cloud services business they should buy a company like tanium it's a you know eight nine billion dollar um cloud security based company uh you know 500 million dollars revenues growing 50 percent a year 90 percent gross margins they need to actually layer on some other services to cross sell exciting new businesses that's where i'd be focused if i were them
0: all right coming up snap and twitter teaming up is a social gathering a win-win we'll bring you all the details plus airbnb going bonkers in its market debut should you book this name in your portfolio we've got that and much more when Fast Money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. Take a look at Airbnb soaring in its market debut, the stock surging 113%, but check this out. One of these things is not like the other. More towards the Sesame Street. Just take a look at the travel stocks. Airbnb's market cap now stands at $86.5 billion. That is bigger than Booking Holdings, Marriott, Hilton, and Expedia. And it goes beyond travel. With today's gains, Airbnb is now bigger than Target and Goldman Sachs. We could talk about money being left on the table. We could talk about the huge first day pop. But the question that we need to answer tonight is simply, does that make sense? Guy Dami, what do you say?
2: They're going to do $4 billion in revenue. They're expecting double-digit revenue growth, at least the analysts are. So start doing the math. I mean, it's going to take, in my opinion, five years to deserve this valuation. And maybe that's the way the world is right now. Maybe people don't care. Maybe it is sort of the greater fool's theory thing. But when you sort of look at this and look at DoorDash yesterday and say to yourself, what am I missing, it doesn't make any sense to me. It takes a long time to grow in these valuations. And, oh, by the way, we didn't even talk about it. But the employment uh, situation in this country is not getting better. As a matter of fact, it seems to be getting worse. And although we can talk about, you know, the summer of next year, things getting back to normal, it's a long time from here to there. So in my world, it's ridiculously expensive, Melissa.
0: Karen, what do you make of it?
4: Well, one thing that I found really interesting that I didn't notice until this afternoon, when I looked at the S-1, they actually, the company themselves, or the entity of the company, was not actually selling stock. It was all. It looked employees, and you know, about hundreds of names of people selling. So I don't know that the company really left any money off the on the table. Um, And even if they did, they were selling 31 million shares out of you know whatever 260, but whatever the number is, it's something much much greater. All that having been said, though, it's crazy. I don't get it at all. It's crazy. I mean, it reminds me of 2000. Reminds me of, you know, ridiculous first day. You know, up things up. A 1,000% that ended up going to zero? Not, but I think this is. There's real value here for sure. There's real value in DoorDash. This much real value? I don't really get it. And that total addressable market, it somewhat reminds me of, you know, in 2000, they would price things by eyeballs. I mean, these other travel companies, they still have a gigantic addressable market as well, and they're not trading at anything close. So I don't get it. Maybe the thought, though, is that Airbnb will
0: displace the business of a Hyatt and a Marriott and and the other companies, which it now eclipses in valuation, Dan. Can Can you get your arms around that sort of explanation?
5: Well, it's funny, you know, a few years ago when we saw these gig economy companies really take off, we were really worried about the displacement of a lot of um, businesses, a lot of workers because of this disruption. And when you think about it, the hospitality industry has, at least the hotel industry has about two and a half million workers that are, a lot of them furloughed right now, probably are out of jobs. So if Airbnb comes back and they really attack that addressable market, which a lot of people think they do, there's going to be tremendous disruption in our workforce here. Um, So, you know, listen, it's a great company. Uh, You know, we were all renting houses on VRBO 10 years ago before Airbnb existed. It's not like they invented the space or anything like that. So to me, at $88 billion, it doesn't make a whole heck of a lot of sense. But this is not on the bankers and it's not on the companies. It's on investors who want to buy it here.
0: Good point there. Let's talk more about the uh, Airbnb IPO with one of its original investors. Rick Heitzman is founder and partner at First More Capital. Rick, good to see you. Good to see you again. How's
7: everyone doing
0: tonight? Everybody's great. Um, you still own shares at this point. Have you sold any?
7: I've sold zero. I've okay. invested, invested along the way and i uh, awful happy to do it.
0: Um, so I guess, I guess that answer sort of answers this question, but a slightly different because you got in at a much lower cost basis. If you were to put fr- fresh money to work at this moment in time, would you buy Airbnb stock at $144 a share?
7: I would. I think you know differently than some of the stocks you've seen pop recently. Airbnb is really set up for either the kind of the post-vaccination world, uh, post-COVID, where people will be traveling, and they've even built a great business during COVID. And you know, as you think about consumer brands going forward, you know, Airbnb's become a verb for both hosts and guests. So the ability to build that marketplace. And to be part of a kind of a permanent part of the twenty first century economies, or rare position.
3: Hey, Rick, it's Tim. Thanks for joining us. Yeah. Would you say Airbnb was helped or hurt by COVID? And if you look at how they were pitching this deal, uh, they were certainly making it seem as if this was a very COVID friendly way to travel. Um, and you know, the, the great irony here is that they seem to have benefited from COVID.
7: It, it really is a great irony. You know, they said if if you would have told us in February that you know, Airbnb wasn't going to be a public company in April, we would have been shocked. And if you would have told us in June that Airbnb was going to be a public company in 2020, we would have been shocked. So you know, originally, especially coming out of you know, the early signs of China, I think the company was tremendously negatively impacted by COVID. Uh, you know, and obviously they put in the s one, they had a couple months of negative revenue, They had more, more cancellations than bookings. But I think as all of us adapted, the company adapted, and now a quarter of its bookings are for 28 days or more. So, you know, this work from home, work from everywhere culture, Airbnb is kind of co-opted and it's, co- it's become a work from an Airbnb. And they've captured that part of the market. And in addition, at least when I start traveling for business again, I'd rather not be around people. I don't, you know, we don't need a big bar scene or a big restaurant. I'd rather be safe and secure in a place of my own. And I think that plays into clearly the direction that Airbnb was going on the, on the business side. So I think that it originally started out as a very negative thing, and now it's taken advantage of the COVID tailwinds. Hey,
5: hey, Rick, it's Dan. Uh, congrats on another great exit. Um, here's the question i have for you the word exit right there's a lot of different ways that uh... private companies can come to the public markets we've seen a traditional ipo like airbnb and doordash today we've seen um... past ones where uh... you know the direct listing spotify um, slack that sort of thing your VC firm just launched a SPAC this year. Um, what are you thinking about of all these different ways of exiting um, the way you're advising your portfolio companies and what does this week with DoorDash and Airbnb tell you or inform um, about your experience possibly with a SPAC going forward? Yeah,
7: I mean, what I think it says is that you know the one size fits all traditional IPO doesn't work. I mean, they, there was a, a bunch of different uh, games that people tried to play to make sure this worked, but obviously, with all the people involved, and all the banking teams and syndication teams, price discovery was broken. You saw Brian Chesky's face when he saw the initial bid, he was shocked. You saw Tony's face from DoorDash yesterday, they were shocked. So I think that you know the price discovery and the mechanism of a traditional IPO isn't working for most companies today, and they're looking at alternatives. So I think there's a tremendous number of high-quality companies. That are going to go out in 2021 and there's going to be kind of three paths and i think you're going to see a diversity of ways the best companies go public there's going to be traditional ipos where people will still complain about them on twitter for all the same reasons there's going to be specs which i think are going to get an increasing share of mm-hmm. the best companies who want price and date certainty and there will be direct listings as we've seen a couple great ones this year
0: rick always great to hear from you thank you Thank you. Good seeing everybody. Rick Heitzman, a first mark. We got breaking news here. Let's get straight to Meg Terrell. Meg.
10: Hey, Melissa, the FDA's outside committee of advisors has just voted in favor of Pfizer and BioNTech's COVID-19 vaccine, saying that the benefits outweigh the risk for people ages 16 years and older. Now, the vote broke down to 17 yeses, four noes and one abstention. Uh, And really, the the disagreement there at the end was over whether to include 16 and 17 year olds here in the vote, uh, just debating how much evidence really uh, is there for them. So the discussion discussion is continuing right now, and we'll see if, you know, they discuss what age group the emergency use authorization they would recommend uh, be issued for. Uh, but a favorable vote there for this first COVID-19 vaccine in the United States. Melissa, now this goes up to the FDA, and they make their decision about whether to issue this emergency use authorization. You're seeing Pfizer there up 3%. This is a big moment. The first vaccine potentially headed to market in the U.S. for this pandemic. Mel.
0: This is, this is good news, Meg. <laughs> good news uh, coming out of the FDA. What is, what would, you know, assuming the FDA in full approves the panel's decision, what are the next steps? Because it sounds like the states haven't even decided who would get the vaccine. I mean, Uber CEO, Dara Shahi is sending letters to all the governors saying that they want, he wants Uber drivers be considered essential workers. Certain things haven't yet even been decided.
10: That is true. The first tippy-top priority group, Phase 1A, has been recommended by a CDC uh, advisory committee for health care workers and people who live in long-term care facilities like nursing homes. Now states can make their own plans. Most of them have said those are the two groups they plan to give their first doses to. So once the FDA issues this emergency use authorization within 24 hours almost three million doses are going to go out across the United States to 636 different locations. So all the states have somewhat different plans for who they're going to prioritize here. Uh, And then we are going to hear more about how that CDC advisory committee recommends the next groups. And that is where you're going to see a lot of lobbying for who's an essential worker. Should people over 65 be prioritized first? This is going to be uh, a debate to come. Uh, And of course, now Moderna's vaccine is up next week, too. So we're going to have two vaccines potentially coming out within weeks. But this is a really huge moment here uh, after a long committee discussion today.
0: All right. Meg, thank you. Meg Terrell with the latest uh, good news coming out of the FDA. The first uh, p- the first vaccine potentially to be fully approved for emergency use authorization in the United States. We are looking at some of these travel stocks. They're up in the after hour session, a Delta, a Royal Caribbean. No surprise. Um, Tim Seymour, what, what should we expect the reaction be tomorrow?
3: I, I think we've had a big run in reopening stocks and I for a guy that's been pretty bullish on airlines in good days and bad days so you know average that out it you know i I do think that you've you've you know, normalized earnings for airlines are maybe 2023 if you get back that international travel and, and the business. And I, at some point, um, you have to say that uh, you know, we've, we've done a lot of work on the way back. So I don't think we're going to get a, a very big response on this. I think you know, ultimately, yes, you buy reopening plays when COVID may be seen at its darkest point. Um, and I think we've had that point because again, the, the concept of the vaccination has been, vaccination has been priced in for, for, for a month and a half at this point. So um, I I don't think you run out of these reopening stocks. And I think the trades that we've talked about on the industrial and reopening still work. But I I don't think you're going to see a big bounce on this news.
0: Yeah, you see Carnival up uh, by about 3 percent. NCLH up 2.4 percent. Dan Nathan, I thought it was buy the rumor, sell the news.
5: (laughs) Well, they bought it and they kept on buying it. And now we know that the vaccines are coming. I think, you know, the report as it relates to this Pfizer vaccine that earlier in the year that the trump administration did not buy another hundred million doses or so Listen, I, you know i've said this on the show numerous times i think the optimism that this is going to be a very easy inoculation of our population of three hundred thirty million for a whole host of reasons whether it's logistics whether it's anti-vaxxers whether it's supply is, is just to me i think that's baked into the market right now and it's not discounting the potential for um just a push out of that whole process where we will not really be back to normal until sometime in late 2021 possibly early 2022 so to me i think you might see these news uh, pegs getting sold by investors especially early in next year
0: dr fauci was saying that he would expect a return to some sort of normalcy by the end of next year um, guy we were making the point before that on on the most recent vaccine mondays of good news The market impact had been less and less and less. What do you think it will be tomorrow?
2: Yeah, I don't know necessarily if it's a broader market thing, because unless I'm way off base, I thought this was somewhat expected in terms of this outcome, and it is a great outcome. So I don't know necessarily broader market, but what I will say is I know for a fact that Dan Nathan at risk reversal was talking about Pfizer getting to $43, which was the high we saw in late 2018, early 2019, and here we are now. You have to make a decision. I think it's probably a good idea to take a little money off the table. And we've been somewhat steadfast in IBB, the biotech ETF, which, as last I looked, was right around 150 or so, which is another all-time high. So I'd be taking profits in Pfizer, rolling the dice, and continuing to stay long in IBB, Mel.
0: Yeah, it it feels, though, Karen, like this could help pave the way for the markets to continue being strong into year-end at least.
4: Yes, I think so. I, I kind of disagree with Dan and the thought of even if there, even if the vaccine isn't rolled out seamlessly and even if there are hiccups that the, the positive sentiment that comes from it, I think will be enough to keep this market buoyed. And then who knows, we might get a stimulus package. I don't know if that'll happen. But um, so I, I do think this good news Will continue to be good news for a while, albeit at less and less, you know, bang for the buck every time. I think if the FDA had come out with something different, that would have been obviously far more newsworthy. This was this was expected, but I think as the population gets uh, inoculated, I think that we'll continue to see positive news. All right.
0: uh, Just taking a a check on some of the uh, stay-at-home stocks, a Peloton, a Zoom, they're each down about a percent right now. We'll keep monitoring the market reaction as we go along. Coming up, another part of the market that could get a boost from this Pfizer news, energy. It had a big day today. We'll dive into the options pits to take a look at what is around the corner. Stay tuned. Welcome back to Fast Money. Today was a huge day for the energy trade. Brent jumping above $50 a barrel for the first time since March, while WTI had its best day since mid-November. Let's bring in Mike Co, who spotted a big move for one energy name in the options market. Mike, what you see?
2: Yeah, we were taking a look at Occidental, which saw well above average daily options volume. Calls outpacing puts by about 4 to 1. The most active options were the January 22 strike calls. More than 25,000 of those traded for $1.65. Buyers of those calls are obviously betting that the rally in that stock could continue. But I would point out this wasn't the only one. We also saw it in Southwest, Schlumberger, Cabot Oil & Gas, Apache Diamondback, and of course, XLE, the energy ETF. All of these we're seeing unusually bullish options activity today.
0: Yeah. Tim, you you buy moves like these?
3: I've been long Schlumberger uh, for the last three months, four months, and, and, you know, people forget also how we started all this move. Remember, this was a price war between Russia and OPEC that was started percolating and kind of, you know, getting into February and really led the market down. Oil's been the last to come out of this. Uh, it doesn't mean demand's recovered, but they didn't expect the demand shock. And it's brought a lot more discipline back into OPEC. Unfortunately, that's what it took. Um, I think oil prices are going to be able to hold these levels if the dollar stays low. And therefore, look at best of breed, uh, whether it's the integrated names or Schlumberger to me, um, which have lagged that move back in oil, actually, and are well below their pre-COVID levels.
0: All right. Uh, Thanks for that, Mike. And I'll see you tomorrow. Tomorrow being Options Action. Full show. 530 p.m. Eastern Time. Up next, Goldman Sachs getting all Grinchy on shares of Best Buy. Just as we close in on the holiday rush, we'll tell you uh, what landed the retailer on this naughty list much more fast right after this quick break. Only 14 days until Christmas. And Goldman Sachs is getting real grinchy on one retail name. The big bank slapping a sell rating on Best Buy, saying its strong 2020 performance will be hard to top. You can head over to CNBC.com slash pro to read more about the call. In the meantime, let's get the trade on this. Uh, Goldman, the analyst there, makes himself very clear that he likes the company. It's just the stock's valuation. The comps are going to get tough, Tim. Where do you stand on a Best Buy?
3: Grinchy is, is probably the right thing to do, even though this is a company that I'm, I'm largely bullish on, too. I think you look at that $90 level on the stock, though, and I think you're going to see holiday season. Um, you know, people bought those iPads, laptops, you know, all kinds of Apple gear and phones uh, and printers going into this and throughout the year. So um, I do think this was one of the great years Best Buy will see, uh, and I think the, the stock still needs to correct a bit
0: guy what do you think i th- we're thinking about creating a countdown clock guy by the way for not this christmas but the following christmas as well
2: starting on like the 26th right and just no, do it every day just now to me. start now meanwhile you're saying you're <laughs> saying goldman sachs is grinchy i know for a fact that when you go to best buy you go there with like a legal pad and you take notes and then you walk out and you buy the stuff on the line so maybe maybe the reason they're grinchy is because the, your shopping habits you ever thought of that With that said, Melissa, I think 91 makes sense to Tim's point because that's where we topped out back in February, if you can believe it. Um, You don't have a huge amount of EPS growth. It's not crazy expensive. The quarter was fantastic, but maybe the best is in the stock right now. 91 makes sense to me.
0: And and just quickly, Karen, the analyst does say he expects good comps to be reported when when the company does report its quarter in March. So expecting a pretty good holiday season, but I guess the question is how much pull forward was there and can they top this year's performance?
4: I don't think the valuation is really that stretched here at all. I understand, you know, they were obviously the beneficiary in many ways, but uh, of the pandemic and certainly from work from home. But I don't know. I, I so It's come in a fair amount already. So I'm disagreeing with the Grinch here, and I don't know what the opposite of the Grinch was, but... Uh, I'm not frosty on it. I like it. Sin- Even Cindy
0: Lou Who. <laughs> Cindy Lou Who. All right. Cindy Lou Who. Okay. Yeah. Good one, Guy. Uh, up next, your final trades. <laughs> Do not miss the path forward race and opportunity in America. Look at the economics of the Latino community, including representation in corporate America, education, and entrepreneurship. That is tonight, 8 p.m. Eastern Time here on CNBC. Time for the final trade. Tim Seymour.
3: Yeah, Disney. I mean, you want new content? How about the Kardashian family on Hulu and Star? I mean, reason enough to buy it. Disney.
0: <laughs> Dan Nathan. Yeah, I think a
5: real unsung player in that content war is Sirius uh, Satellite Radio. I like Siri here.
4: Karen. well I agree with Dan on that, and I agree we we're talking the halftime call today on Home Depot, which Dan liked from the chart. I like from the uh, valuation. Home de- uh, Lowe's had good earn- good uh, investor day, and I like Home Depot as well. Guy.
0: PSX. All right, Mad Money starts right now.